I agreed to read this book because it sounded interesting. And it is interesting. It's 443 pages of very dense text, some charts, no pretty pictures, 11 pages of bibliography and a short index. So it really does cover the history of the human impact on the planet, which is really what we're, ta- what we're talking about. It's not a new green history of the earth. It's a new green history of the world. And I've been told that you only remember three things out of any given talk. So I've picked out three that you can listen for and try to remember. One is the parable of Easter Island, which is the first chapter of the book, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. And the other is deforestation, which actually surprised me. It starts in ancient, ancient history, and it goes right on up through today. And the other thing is population increase. And if you read the papers, you probably know that we went from 6 billion people to 7 billion people in just the last 10 years, and that just happened. So this is the cover of the book. I don't know that the author, Clive Ponting, who is an English scholar, had anything to do with design, but if you look, I looked at it for a long time before I realized that every frame where the earth is shown from space, it's a little grayer and a little grayer, and you get to the very bottom on the right, and it's nothing, which is kind of scary, but that that may just be an artistic license. The book was originally published as a green history of the world in 1991 in Britain, and it was republished and, and revised in 2007. The first chapter of the book, he uses the story of Easter Island as a parable, really a warning to us about what humans can do to the planet. Easter Island, if you look on the map, there's a little arrow that shows you it's about 3,200 kilometers from the west and 2,000 miles from the east from land. So it's in the way out in the Pacific Ocean. About the 5th century, Polynesian settlers arrived there, other islands including Hawaii. This was not a very hospitable piece of land, but some of the people elected to stay there and started to create, try to create a culture. It was a little bit too wet and too cold. So they couldn't have their normal diet, and they ended up eating, having only yams and chickens. So that was the diet, which was a little on the restricted side. But the island was forested. There were probably only 30 or 50 people who stopped off there. And about, within about 1,000 years, there were 7,000 people on this tiny island. They had destroyed the vegetation. They had destroyed the trees. So there was no way off the island, and they had, uh, were victims of disease, and then there were wars between the groups and even cannibalism because there was no food. So they left these monuments, which have fascinated visitors ever since, but there are still no trees on the island. And the reason the trees are gone, one re- main reason is that to move these big monoliths, which are several tons each, they cut the trees and rolled the trees on the tree trunks, rolled the monuments, the stone on the tree trunks. So... They sort of cut off their escape hatch. If they even remembered how to make a canoe, there would have been really no way off the island. So this is his warning and his parable to us about what we're doing to our planet. There's, there's really no escape hatch here. Human population evolved over a period of you know, 2 million years and maybe 100,000 years till we got up to a, the modern species that we are today. Human history really is about 10,000 years. Uh, it was estimated there were maybe 4 million people about 10,000 B.C. 
early humans were hunter-gatherers, and he talks a little bit about this kind of society. This was, this was a society that could sustain itself indefinitely. But they basically wandered and, and found food that was, was readily available. They did not practice agriculture. The wolf was the first animal domesticated. Early modern era population, 10,000 B.C. up to the beginnings of the last two millennia. It's about 3 to 4 million at 10,000 BCE, and then it has risen up to 100 million by uh, the beginning of the, the last two millennia, which is pretty, it was a pretty big surprise to me, actually. I didn't realize that the population of the Earth had, had gotten that large that quickly. Uh, in the broadest sense, the last, the history of the last few thousands of years has has been about evolving human culture, and that has been primarily, according to this author, about creating agriculture, which can sustain a civilization. He says that civilizations have only been independently advanced by humans six times in, in the 10,000 years of human history. The early development of agriculture was independently invented in three different areas, according to this book and to the archaeology that's backs it up. One area was in the, the area of modern-day Iraq and, and Turkey and the Jordan Valley. And those are places where early uh, domestication of animals and growth of certain crops began. Um, wheat, a couple of varieties of wheat. They had uh, sheep and goats and pigs and very late cattle. Interestingly enough, the horse wasn't domesticated until about 3,000 BCE, and that was in the, in the Ukraine because horses are, of course, famous for warfare all over, the, all over the world. He spends quite a lot of time in the book talking about the, and part, part of the most interesting part of the book to me is about the early, the early culture. Humans have had a, a dramatic impact on the planet from way back, and a lot of archaeologists believe today that the woolly mammoth and some of the other large animals that, that vanished at the end of the last ice age vanished partly because they were hunted by humans. Hawaii, uh, when the settlers got to Hawaii, but in a thousand years from 500 to uh, 1500, they exterminated uh, some 70% of all the bird species, and that was one of the places that had the, the most birds on earth. Uh, Mesopotamia, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, is, is one of the traditional birthplaces of civilization. And uh, the, first, the first generally agreed upon place is Sumer, which is the south of that country. And, and the characteristics of a, of a civilization include having an agricultural base to create surplus to support a society, and that is to support rulers and priests and, and to evolve that society, which these folks did. The first, according to archaeologists, and largest city on the planet was a city called Uruk, which was twice as big as classical Athens and had a wall 10 kilometers around it. So it was a, it was a big city, and it was in this part, marshy, uh, damp part of uh, Sumer. The Indus Valley is a, another early, early culture, and uh, these get sort of lumped together in the book for one reason. Both of these cultures depended intensely on irrigation to make their crops. And the irrigation process, unbeknownst to the people who were, 
who were practicing it made the soil build up salts. And eventually the soil became so salty it couldn't sustain food. And eventually those civilizations collapsed, which is pretty basic feature of this. I think the degradation of the soil is going to be, you know, it's the theme that runs through every one of these civilizations. The uh, people in this part of the world were growing uh, barley, mainly for beer, which is one of God's gifts to humanity, and einkorn and emmer, two early forms of wheat, which usually are not grown anymore. Lentils, beans, chickpeas, and they had sheep and goats. And they had pigs, and much later they had uh, cattle that came somewhat later, and the horse was, the, of course, the last. But these were the main animals that they had, and that they were depending on. And soil degradation was characteristic of of each of these communities, and eventually these civilizations each collapsed, and the human populations drifted away. The last place that the that the agriculture from this part of the world went to was Egypt, the Nile Valley. The Nile had had difficulty developing agriculture because of the annual flooding. But because they uh, developed a system to cooperate with the annual flooding of the Nile, that agriculturalist system lasted for 5,000 years. So they did something right. They weren't irrigating the land. They were depending on and working with the river. And, of course, the sad thing now is that the Aswan Dam, the big dam that was built in the night, uh, half a century ago, has uh, dramatically curtailed the the Nile, but anyway, that that was one of the ancient civilizations that that held out so much better than others. And one thing that I, I used as a kind of a teaser to get people to think about coming to this book talk was uh, Easter Island. What do Easter Island and Libya have in common? And they have in common that in both places the land was horribly degraded. The ancient Carthage, which was Rome's rival in the second century before the common era. There's a long protracted war. Carthage eventually lost the war and was leveled and that area became part of the breadbasket for Rome. As Rome came into the imperial era part of the politics of the time was that they provided free bread to every citizen of Rome. That's 50,000 people plus the Roman army which they had to keep in the field. So they had to have enormous fields to grow grain to feed this population and modern day Libya which is a lot of what is now desert was once part of the breadbasket of ancient Rome. It was cultivated to a point where the soil degraded then the vegetation that grew there was grazed by the tribesmen, the Berbers who came through there and eventually we get desert and that's what a lot of the land is today. But Rome was a, was a very dominant force in, the, in this whole era of Mediterranean history from the beginnings of, around the year 1000 up to really, really right up to now in many ways, culturally anyway. China developed and invented their entirely different agriculture, two of them. The north part of China developed an agriculture built around millet, which is a grain, and south China developed uh, an agriculture built around rice cultivation so that they had two different food sources. Uh, they independently domesticated the pig, about 5,500. It was very important in their diet. And they were the first to domesticate the chicken, about 5,000 BC, BCE. So they had some interesting different food, food products going on there. And I'll probably forget if I don't go ahead and say it now, but early rice cultivation was done on land. 
Later rice cultivation, when they discovered how to do it with flooded fields, was one of the least harmful forms of agriculture. It produced high yields and it did not harm the land. And so that was one thing that they did, did right when they got to that point. And rice cultivation spread all over Asia and got to Japan last about 400 BCE. The other place in the world that civilizations arose independently is in the New World, and they rose later partly because the immigration of humans was later. Teotihuacan, which is the, the ancient city, pre-Aztec. Most people think they're going to see an Aztec city, but it's not near Mexico City. That was a city from about in the time of Rome, 400-500 CE, that had a population of 100,000 people, which was twice the size of Rome, just to kind of give you a little perspective. There were a number of cultures that evolved along this area from the Valley of Mexico over to the Yucatan Peninsula, the Guatemala, the Belize. The Olmec were one of the first and once again, they had a, a very interesting and dynamic culture, built lots of, of temples, and then suddenly collapsed. And archaeologists believe it was because of the way they were farming the rainforest. The rainforest has all of its life force in the canopy, in the plants. There's not a dense, rich soil under a rainforest. And when you cut the rainforest, you're left with clay and crummy soil, and eventually it's a, it's a, a ruin. And they were trying to practice a form of agriculture that involved cutting the rainforest that have ultimately, ultimately failed. One of the interesting things he brings out in the book is all the different foodstuffs and how they, they travel around the world. And probably one of the very most important, I think the most important, is probably corn, which originated with the peoples in the Guadalajara era, area of Mexico. It spread throughout those cultures eventually came into the what we, is now the United States and was crossbred with other, other forms of native corns. The other culture that independently arose is the uh, Inca culture in Peru, uh, the, in the Andes Mountains. The Inca had a very different agriculture and history. They were isolated from the other uh, peoples in, in many ways, and they developed only, they had only three domesticated animals, the guanaco and the vicuña and the, and the guinea pig, and they ate the guinea pig. The products that came out of, out of Mesoamerica, food products, gourds, uh, pumpkin squash, zucchini, tomatoes, avocados, chili peppers, maize, and beans. Think how important those are to our diet today. The poor Incas only had the, uh, the two animals and the guinea pig, but they did have one other thing, and that was the potato, which originated uh, near Lake Titicaca. They think there were four tubers that they ate. And the amazing thing is, how did these people find out that that member of the deadly nightshade family was edible? Because they are highly poisonous plants, but that tuber is a wonderful food and is spread all over the world. Some other important foods that have spread across the world that just need to be mentioned briefly are sorghum, which originated in the Sudan about 2000 BCE, millet from the Sahara, overall cotton from the Sudan, yams from Africa and into Southeast Asia, manioc and the sweet potato from South America. The interesting thing is by 2000 BCE, all of these plants, foodstuffs, were, were under cultivation. So it was really the ability to create this agriculture and this food surplus that let us have these civilizations that we've been talking about. 
their characteristics are not entirely delightful. They do make some beautiful artifacts, but they tend to uh, wage war on each other. That's a characteristic of all these societies across time. And uh, it's sort of depressing in a way to look back at human history. The first kingdom that developed was in Sumer. And the several of the cities were united under one king. And then there was a king next door to Sumer. This is a biblical territory over there. And a kingdom called Akkad. And the ruler was called Sargon. Sargon got his army together and conquered Sumer and created the first empire on the planet. And he was so happy with himself that he declared himself a god. And the author says, and thus the pattern for human history was set. So there you go. Egypt, pharaohs, the whole business. I think one of the things that's interesting is the deforestation of the planet. And that's the one thing I would like for you to to think about. Uh, It's estimated that by early modern times that most of the forest all the way from Morocco to Afghanistan along the Mediterranean had, had been cut. It was severely deforested. And that was kind of a shock to me. I didn't, and of course, I didn't realize how many humans were on the planet either. In ancient Greece, the best account of the deforestation of ancient Greece is by, was written by Plato in his book Critias. Greece had been a, a land of evergreen trees and beaches and oaks and heavily forested, believe it or not. And within a few generations before Plato's time, the trees had been cut. Population pressure was too great. So that these trees had all been destroyed and the landscape had changed and it looked more like it looks now. This is Plato's description. What remains now compared with what then existed is like the skeleton of a sick man, all the fat and soft earth having wasted away and only the bare framework of the land being left. There are some mountains which now have nothing but food for bees, and they have had trees not very long ago. There were many lofty trees of cultivated species and boundless pasturage for flocks. Moreover, it was enriched by the yearly rains from Zeus, which were not lost to the sea as now by flowing from bare land into the sea. The soil was deep, and therein it received the water, storing it up in the retentive loamy soil, and provided all the various districts with abundant supplies of spring water and streams, whereof the shrines still remain even now at the spots where the fountains formerly existed. It gives you a sense of how how Greece changed. And what happened was everything they tried to do to stop deforestation failed. Population pressure was too great. So what happened was they they decided to plant olive trees and grapevines, which do well in, in soil. So that sort of maybe changed human culture right there a little bit because the uh, olive could grow in that that, uh, very uh, limey soil. Deforestation is a a major fact of history. The last forest in China that was left in all of China was probably cleared about 200 years ago. The Yellow River was called the Yellow River because of the soil runoff that went into it. It was yellow for centuries and centuries because of the loss of soil, which is not good for agriculture or for people either. And it's estimated that only 10% of the forest that had stood around the Mediterranean was still there by 2000 BCE. That was a a major surprise. One of the the biggest problems was really, in a chapter he called The Long Struggle, was to feed the human population. And human population growth was very slow through the millennia. It grew, but it wasn't 
accelerated until about the last 250 or 300 years. Um, I was surprised that in, in the last 300 years, population growth has been 20 times that what it was before. And I can't really get into all this Chinese history. They built a long canal to move. <laughs> Way too many facts here, but they did build a wonderful canal that moved all the, f the food up to the north where they had to fight the invaders from the, the far north. And basically what happens over and over is that soil productivity falls and that there was a famine in China. Even though it was a rich and powerful country, there was a famine somewhere in China, 90% of a period over 2,000 years. Most, most every year somewhere in China there were famines. And this was a fact of, of life also in the West. Food shortages were chronic in Europe. There was a really bad harvest in 1315. And... Um, I think it was maybe sparked by a volcano, volcanic activity, but anyway, all over the, the region there was a bad harvest and there were hordes of people wandering around looking for food, stealing food, whatever. And supposedly it got so bad that they were even practicing cannibalism uh, when somebody died because there just was no food. And there were repeated famines across Europe uh, as late as the last one in England was 1597. The last one in, in Europe and France was 1816, and the very last one recorded was the potato famine in Ireland, 1846-47, and we probably all pretty well up on that one. The European population growth gets to 120 million by 1700. Interestingly enough, most of the foods from the Far East came through the Islamic world, through Spain, into Europe, and that's in the period from six to 800 or so. So we have a lot of foods that did originate in Europe, a lot of them that came, particularly oranges, limes, lemons, bananas from Southeast Asia. And the foods from the Americas came in after, in the 16th, 17th century, after the colonization of America started and all these different foods started to be, to be brought back. And I love the fact that the turkey got from the Americas to Turkey and got named to Turkey and then came back to the Americas. It's named Turkey because they found it in Turkey. Um, one of the bad things that happened, the worst things that happened, was over-exploitation of animals. And a great example for us is the passenger pigeon, which existed in the millions into the, into the 1800s. It was a beautiful bird. There are two of them in museums, stuffed ones in museums here in Knoxville, one at Iams and one at McClung Museum. But they darkened the sky. They were large pigeons. They were a food stuff. And they were just slaughtered uh, and sold, you know, packed up and sold as a meat product. So they became extinct in 1914. And they went from literally from millions and millions of birds to zero. Fishing, whaling, and sealing. What's interesting about this topic is that every time in human history, I thought this was like a new problem, that we had gotten so mechanized we were you know, cleaning out the seas, but it's not new. It started as soon as we got boats. Uh, there were fishermen in Europe who fished all the fish out on the, on the Atlantic coast, and then they went to Greenland and fished out everything, and then they went across to North America. And the same thing with whaling vessels. They fished whales down to almost zero, you know, to a tiny population, pushed them towards extinction. And then when they couldn't kill those particular whales, they developed mechanized techniques in the 20th century to kill the whales that were deeper in the ocean. So that this has been ongoing, and there's been a, the last 80 years, there's been a whaling commission trying to keep 
the whales from being exterminated by exploitation, which is really sad commentary. And the American buffalo. There were literally tens of millions of these, I think 60 million if I remember right, in the, in the plains when white settlers got out to the Great Plains and the Native Americans killed about 300,000 of them a year, which allowed the, the herds to be very stable. It's a very beautiful animal. But one of my friends pointed out it was not good for the railroads they built across the country because it could come stampeding into the railroads, and the railroads kind of encouraged extermination and overhunting of these animals, and they were killed for meat and hides, and they went from you know enormous herds down to being almost extinct, and today they survive mainly in the parks. But thank goodness they do survive. In Hawaii, the poster child for uh, bird extermination, and two other good examples, the chinchilla from South America was hunted almost to extermination uh, for fur, for clothing, coats, whatever. And the koala bear was hunted. They exported 200,000 koala bears a year from Australia in the early 20th century. And uh, today that wouldn't go over real well. <laughs> I think people are too sentimental about animals. But that's when culture finally did turn to mechanized mink farming. So we had the chinchilla farms and the mink farms once they killed off most of the wild animals. Disease and death. Ah. This is a topic that he gets into. with, and, he, and he, There's so many examples, I can't really begin to touch on all of them. But they start at the very beginnings of civilization. One of the animals is a, um, is a little fluke that lives in the water in the irrigation canals and goes from snails to humans. And it infested almost all of the early uh, cultures that practiced um, uh, irrigation. So that was one of the real early ones. Uh, smallpox devastated Europe and and the world repeatedly with with outbreaks that would just ravage the world and measles. The good example of how bad measles were for people who were, had not been exposed to it. In 1875, the king of Fiji went to Australia, paid a visit, came back, and some of the people in his group had measles, and all his tribal leaders gathered to welcome him home, got exposed to the measles, and 40,000 people died in that epidemic of measles in Fiji alone. Uh, Black Death came into Rome, uh, came from India to Egypt to Constantinople uh, in the the 540s, I'm sorry, the 540s, the Roman Empire, and killed 10,000 people a day uh, until it ran its course. It hit China and killed 25% of their population. And it came back to Europe again, and it it lived in a a little bacterium in rats that got passed to people. And uh, anyway, it it spread um, through Europe and and devastated Europe for at least a couple of centuries. The other one, another great example of disease is the uh, great flu epidemics. There were many flu epidemics that, that devastated different populations at different times, but the 1918 flu epidemic was probably the worst in all of recorded history. Other diseases that have plagued humanity included leprosy. I didn't really know what that was, but it's a bacterial infection. And if you got it, you were treated as if you were dead or maybe even even killed. Um, very disfiguring. Typhus, which is a disease that spread by lice and uh, in very bad climates, in sanitary conditions. And so wartime, soldiers, armies, concentration camps was very common. 
And smallpox absolutely devastated the Americas. Smallpox and measles, when the Spanish came over, their secret weapon was diseases the Indians had never been exposed to. It's estimated the population of Mexico in 1500 was 20 million. A hundred years later, it was one million. So they had killed off almost all the population. World population just keeps on growing. And as you know, we, we reached 7 billion. We have been able to outfox Malthus because of agricultural achievements. We have you know, brought more land under cultivation, the Americas and the USSR, and we have increased agricultural yields. But at some point, there is going to come an outside limit. I'm not sure when, and he doesn't say that. That's me. That's my opinion. End, end, <laughs> end of sermon. It is a, an ongoing problem, and, we, and, and the distribution of food around the world is, is so unequal. There are so many starving people on the planet and so many people that are, that are eating too much of maybe the wrong things if you look at diseases. The 1970s deforestation that started in Amazonia is absolutely terrifying because when you clear the rainforest, you got nothing. But they haven't been able to somehow somehow get that idea across to people. And probably the worst example in the history of engineering environment was in the Soviet Union in the 1970s, I think, yeah, when they decided to drain a big inland lake, a big lake, the Aral, A-R-A-L, lake, uh, they thought it would be wonderful agricultural land, but it turned out that it was salty. And when they drained it, it got saltier. And the water that was left in the lake was two and a half times as salty as seawater. So they had a giant, huge, ruined piece of land. And the thing that's a game changer for the modern world is fossil fuels, as, as we all know. This is getting into more familiar territory to all of us. But uh, all of the labor through human history was animal and human labor until the invention of various tools, devices, until electricity, until until we got into the, really into the modern age. And and coal production, coal was mined a long time ago, but it was nasty and people preferred not to use it until there wasn't anything else to use. Oil production has exploded from the last hundred years. It is the fuel that runs the modern world. All of our heavy industry and vehicles and everything else, the urban population of the modern world. Uh, It has surprised me only 47% of the world, even in 2000, lived in cities. I would have suspected it would be even higher than that, but not. uh, But the fossil fuels are what poses the greatest, have been our greatest. asset, and they probably are our greatest threat in many, many ways. Car ownership around the world, 1930 to 2000, we are up to almost 800 million vehicles in the world, and that number is going to really explode as people in the Far East and India start to get vehicles powered by perhaps fossil fuel. Who knows? Uh, CFC production, that's the one bright spot. It's actually gone down. <laughs> we invented it and we stopped it. Uh, it was really destroying the ozone layer, but it, that is one thing that has actually gotten somewhat better. Probably the biggest challenges of the future are going to be water supply and air and our air, our air and our water, two things that we absolutely cannot live without. And it's uh, not a new problem. It's a very old problem. I mean, Prince Albert, the Queen Victoria's consort, died 
of cholera that he got from drinking water in London. Uh, it's not a, not a new problem at all. But dumping all of our waste into the water and the air is, uh, is bound to, uh, to get us in the end. And I think that's a topic that's come up over and over in these discussions. Atmospheric carbon dioxide. Probably connected to global warming, depending on your politics. <laughs> In the last century, the world population increased by 3.8 times, the urban population 12.8 times, industrial output 35 times, energy use 12.5 times, oil production 300 times, water use 9 times, irrigation uh, 6.8 times, fertilizer 342 times, fish catch 65 times, organic chemical production 1,000 times, car ownership 7,750 times. and carbon dioxide 30%. So you can see that all of these things accelerated in the last century in in just amazing ways. Think of Africa as a beautiful, sunny uh, continent with lots of wild animals running around in a forest or savanna. Uh, The problem for its long-term survival of the great apes and the animals, great animals of Africa, is the burgeoning human population because they are pushing out all those areas that are supposed to be preserved for the animals and their people. I mean, this is a, this is a really enormous problem. And I, he, he says that the uh, ozone uh, layer is probably, probably the biggest threat that we face other than overpopulation. And his conclusion to the book says, the problem facing modern societies stems from the way they have evolved, and in particular, the momentous changes that have occurred in the last 200 years. The achievements of modern industrial, urban, high-consumption, energy-consumption societies have been remarkable. However, the other side of the coin is that the scale of environmental problems they have created as a consequence of these achievements is unprecedented and of a complexity that almost defies solution. From a wider historical perspective, it is clearly far too soon to judge whether modern industrialized societies are environmentally sustainable. That's the end of my presentation. I'm sorry it doesn't have a high note. (laughs) And I don't claim to be an expert on any of this, but I would try to answer a question or refer you to the book, (laughs) which is a great book. It has charts. When I got the charts scanned in for the slideshow, the person who helped me with it kept saying, boring, boring. I was just wondering if the author talks about how technology might be a, a means to stave off some of the, the negative no, he, consequences. He's, he's not a about. futurist at all. He's just describing everything from his point of view that's happened up to now. And uh, he didn't offer any kind of prognostications about you know, what could, could happen that might help us get out of the pickle that we're in. It's not a very cheerful book, but it's a very, very interesting book. And I particularly enjoyed the parts about the ancient world because I don't know all that much about ancient history. My real knowledge of history is modern U.S., Tennessee, East Tennessee. So this was all all new to me, too. I'm a little bit surprised that you said his conclusion was that it's too soon to tell yet whether the way we're living now is sustainable or not. Mm -hmm. But... If we make it broader and imagine what sort of book he would have written had he done an ecological history of planet mm-hmm. Earth, mm-hmm. Which this in is which not. humans are just a little blip on that, mm-hmm. um, I think he would have told the same story of other species that mm-hmm. gained prominence 
to the point where they were so successful in filling their niche that they changed the environment that sustained them, and then they went It was amazing. I couldn't begin to throw in all the examples he gave. But, I mean, I I was thinking that really the severe exploitation was a more modern technology-driven thing than than it actually was. India, in India, they were exporting in the 19th century half a million trees a year to make railway ties, just cutting. And Britain was buying those to build railroads, and they were just, you know, coming out of the country. And, of course, that's a lot of trees. That's a lot of clear-cutting. Now, everybody wants to go read this book, right? <laughs> well, it was, it was a very interesting book, and I do recommend it. It is... Uh, the parts of it that are the most interesting are probably the ancient history. The, the modern stuff is a little bit less less interesting because it's stuff we all kind of know and we've encountered in other places. Well, I found it interesting that the exploitation of the forests and such mm. certainly has been worldwide because I've always thought of our country and its endless frontier as having mm. that attitude, mm. whereas maybe in Europe and you know mm. other places they were... They were more uh, caring of their environment, and I don't know where I got that idea. But this is this is a yeah. an eye opener. I knew that they had I knew that there had been deforestation, but I didn't realize the extent. For example, ancient Greece. You know, I knew, I knew that it had been cleared of trees, and it, and it became a problem for Europe. Europe was actually the backward part of the whole world culturally until about 1500 when they started expansionism. I mean, their population was low. They had a lot of diseases. They weren't really doing that well. And then when they started the expansion out into the exploring and colonizing, everything changed, and suddenly they became the dominant power. And that's kind of linked to warfare and exploitation and colonies, and there's a lot in here about colonies. The banana went from the Canary Islands to South America. I mean, I always thought bananas were native to South America, but they're not. I was really impressed by visiting New Zealand and how mm. they're trying to change mm-hmm. what happens to the, what is cultivated and what isn't, mm-hmm. what kinds of mining are now banned. Mm-hmm. Um, even the planes going in and out have to be totally disinfected. Mm-hmm. And friends of mine had to leave behind things because there might be a seed or a mm-hmm. piece yeah. of dirt on their boots. Yep. They're really trying hard there, and it's only been around 800 years that it's been and, colonized. And just over a century and a half ago, um, an Englishman got a knighthood for going to Brazil and stealing 70,000 rubber tree seeds to take to Malaysia so that the British business could start a rubber industry in Malaysia. All of this kind of stuff is all through the book, and that's what's really interesting mm-hmm. to me. Anybody else? Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.